Well, 10 months ago, we started this journey in the book of Hebrews. Uh, I don't even know what was, I don't even remember what was going on. I feel like gasoline was 20 cents when we started Hebrews or something. I mean, just humor me. I mean, let's just dream for a minute, you know. But anyway, what a journey. And so I thought, uh, you know, as we were winding this down, I thought, man, I could just take a whole week and we could just talk about all the things that uh, God's shown us in Hebrews just to hit the highlights. And I thought that would take a month just to do that. So... Tonight we're in Hebrews 13, and this final passage is a, it's a very pivotal passage. It's a passage that is personal to me because it ministered a lot to me uh, through the course of God calling me to preach. And this passage just had a great deal. God used this in a great way to, to shed understanding on uh, some of the things that he was calling me to do and some of the things that were going on inside of me as he was moving me to do something that was absolutely terrifying. And the reason for that is, is that what this passage does, it's going to sort of illuminate for us the reality of not just ministry, but Christianity, a relationship with God. When you enter into a relationship with God, it's easy and impossible at the same time. And no one can really understand that unless you're in a relationship with God. Now, on one hand, you know, Jesus tells us that, you know, his burden is light and his yoke is easy. But on another hand, you know, you, when you dive into the Scripture, you realize it, it's very easy to get overwhelmed if you don't understand what's going on. How can something be easy and yet impossible? And I always say that when you... Uh, I don't know about other things. I just know what happens when God calls a man to preach. He calls him to do something that he has absolutely no capacity to do. And that's kind of a terrifying thing. Because it's not sort of, you know, well, when I get a word from you, God, then I'll share it. You see, there's this thing. It's called the calendar. And it goes in a circle and it never stops. And there's this day called Sunday. And it's always ticking away, ticking away, then it's Sunday. Then it's ticking away, ticking away, then it's... So when you're at the mercy of God to speak to you, and you would think after all these years, I would say, well, you know what I mean? It's just, but no, it, it's, it's always that way. doesn't matter all the years I've been preaching, and uh, we're getting not too far from... Uh, I'm, I'm almost... I've almost preached through all 66 books of the Bible here, so we're getting close. We're getting close. But anyway, the point being is that this text will shed some great light on that. So let's read it together. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought you again, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You see, to Paul, it's just a brief little thing. Imagine if he wasn't brief how many months it would take us to get through it. 
Well, not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews. Verse 23, but you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes again or if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy, send your greetings. Grace be with all of you. So, how does this text bring us to a place of simplicity and impossibility all at the same time? Well, I mean, how do you respond to a relationship with a God who calls you to bless those who persecute you? You know, it's an easy thing to say. It's an easy thing to memorize, but it is a whole nother ball game to put that into practice in your life and make it a reality. Or to repay no evil with evil. Or to never avenge yourselves and to trust God that vengeance is His. Or to love your enemies. Or to let no filthiness or foolish talk come from your mouth. Ephesians 5 verse 4. Or 1 Corinthians 6, to flee from all sexual immorality. It's not that there's a moral standard given in Scripture that's inherently easy for us to obey. It's not. And the thing is, is that what happens is if, we're, if we think deeply about any one of those commands and a thousand other ones, you very quickly will come to the point of realizing that it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing to be in a personal relationship with a God who, who calls us to such high standards, who's so holy. And yet makes provision for us. So here's our principle that will guide our time together. God himself has taken steps to assure us that for any and every task that he's called us to fulfill, he will provide the necessary power and resources. Sorry, there you go. So that we can, success, we can be successful in it. The principle that this text is bringing to the forefront of our consciousness is the reality that God is not only going to do this, but that we need to be assured of the fact that He's going to do this. It doesn't matter what the task, whatever He calls us to do, He's going to give us the necessary things to accomplish it and to be successful in it. Or you could say it this way, to be simpler, you could say, well, whatever God requires, He provides. But even in that, you really need more explanation. The point is, is that God doesn't call us to do something and then sort of hang us out to dry. He doesn't call us to something and then just, you know, say, okay, well, good luck with that. Hope you do okay. You know, it's not that he somehow after salvation then abandons us and leaves us to our own devices. Or he doesn't even encourage us. In the standpoint of, you know, come on, I know you can do it in some particular manner or way. Because even that would be insufficient. We need far greater help than that. 
And so I want you to consider how God encourages us to keep going when things get tough, but he's much more than a spiritual cheerleader. You see, he does exhort us and encourage us in the difficulties that we face. But that's just one small component of what he does. God gives us instruction on how to run the Christian race in such a way as to win, but he's much more than a spiritual coach. You see, he's way more than just a cheerleader, way more than just a coach, way more than just a combination of the two. And here's the reason why those are insufficient, because the encourager and the instructor are valuable, but they're external. They're external. It's insufficient. With a cheerleader and an instructor, you will fail. You will fail. You know this from your own life. You've been in situations where maybe there was someone in your family that you loved deeply that was uh, going through some physical, uh, you know, battling some ailment, disease, whatever the case may be. And maybe there were the people around them who genuinely loved them. Maybe you were one of the people and you were such an encourager and cheerleader and you were so just rooting them on and praying for them and just trying to lift them up and pick them up and they had a great instructor and all this medical technology and a doctor that was telling them everything to do and yet it wasn't enough. A cheerleader and instructor are great but here's the problem. What the degree of difficulty of the things that God has called us to is going to take far more than some external information or exhortation so the next principle is is that the answer is through the holy spirit he actually enters into our mind and soul and spirit and empowers us to live the christian life beyond what we're naturally or normally capable of doing that's what makes it supernatural it's beyond natural it's above natural it's outside of natural It's things that you had no idea that you could do. And the way God does it, God can lovingly tell you what to do and not to do because He literally lives in you to sustain your heart, enlighten your mind, and strengthen your will to fulfill His requires, what He requires. You see... He has access to places inside of us that no one else has access to. And when he accesses those places, he remember what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, that he's going to bring a helper who's going to what? Guide us into all truth, right? And so what God does is internally, he begins to guide us and he begins to lead us and he begins to direct us and give us opportunity and he can sustain our heart. He can enlighten our mind. He can strengthen our will to fulfill what He requires us to do. Now, this sounds great. And it is great, but the question is, is it true? Is it biblical? Because just because something sounds great doesn't mean that it's true and certainly doesn't mean that it's biblical. Consider what Paul says in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. You see, 
So what I want you to see tonight about the way God accomplishes, accomplishes this in us is that when it comes to the Christian life, for me and you, God is always prior. He's always prior. Now that may sound grammatically, you know, difficult or wrong, but you need to understand it in that sense because it's different than just God being ahead of you in time. It's more than that. You see, when I say God is prior, I mean that He is earlier in both time and order, simultaneously. So whatever is going on in your life as a believer, God is always at work, whether we recognize that or not, whether we sense that or know that or understand that or not, He's at work. And as He's working, He's always working prior to, always, in time and order. So He always comes first, always. Ah. Now, how long have y'all been stuck here? Well, so you're just going to sit there the whole time like a bump on a log and just let it be stuck the whole entire time? I mean, I thought you were like, go, God. Yeah, amen. I don't know what you're doing. I mean, David's up there. Ah. Okay. The next blank. No, we're on he comes first. Hey, I'm not stuck. I'm just rolling right along. There you go, see? You're stuck. God gave me what I needed to get through this. I don't know about y'all. So he's always first. Oh, I'm dead. He acts. There you go. Before we act. All right, we're going to manual tonight. He acts before we act. We only act because he's already acted. God works in us in advance of our working for him. Now this is what I mean by he's ahead of us in time and order. That as we begin to... It's not just that God, when we say, well, God goes before us. Well, he does go before us. But he's acting and working before us. He's, he's not just ahead of us. He's ahead of us in preparation for us ahead of us, if that makes any sense. So, he's, so his working is the cause of which our willing is the effect So here's what that means. That means that the book of Hebrews isn't telling us that we just sit by idly. See, some people, when they think about this facet of God's character and nature, they begin to drift off course into some understanding that, well, if this is the case, then I don't have to do anything because God's already going to do it, and so I can just be idle. I can just not worry about it because God's going to do it. Well, no, no. This is saying completely the opposite of that. This text is calling us to get up and get to work 
and to be motivated by the assurance that God is already at work for us and equipped us in every way to accomplish what God's calling us to do. And the fact that me and you would even recognize that God's calling us to do something is evidence of the fact that we wouldn't be doing that if God wouldn't have prompted us to even think that thought. Because all we have to do is just back up and remember before you knew Christ. And remember how all the thoughts that you thought and all the things that you did were things that just came natural to you. Because I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me to remember how proficient I was at selfishness, how amazingly gifted I was at being 100% self-centered and completely only thinking about myself and only doing the things that I wanted to do. And then... Christ comes into the equation and suddenly things begin to get turned upside down. And you have desires and priorities that you never dreamed of. And it's all evidence of the fact that God is at work in us in a prior sense. Because remember, the only thing we bring to the table is the fact that Christ in us is the hope of glory. That's the whole we're bringing to the table. I mean, we're not coming up going, well, I've got, I've got some gifts and some talents and some abilities, so I think I can probably do a pretty good job at, I mean, seriously? A pretty good job at what? Who, who's going who's gonna to walk up and say, oh, I think I can do a pretty good job of loving my enemies? I mean, no one can do that. I mean, who's going to do a pretty good job of, of, of not letting an unwholesome word come out of your mouth? No one can do that. Just, just pick one of the Ten Commandments. You don't even need to pick two. Just pick one. And just spend a day or two or a week walking around and, and feel the weight of the boulder that's on top of you as you realize you have no chance on your own. None. So the point is, we start to sort of get a framework for we come into this I mean, empty-handed is, is really not even, it's deficient. I mean, we're at a deficit. God is the one who enables us to do all of this. And so this is the furthest thing. This is not a call to passivity in any way, shape, or form. It's a call to action motivated by the reality that God is at work. So here's what this doesn't mean. This does not mean that God is doing the work of ministry for us. You see, because nowhere does the Bible teach that, well, since God is doing all of this, well, so, you know, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to serve in the church because God's going to serve in the church. I don't need to do this because God's going to do it. I don't need to do that because God's going to do it. Well, no, that's not how that works. What happens is, is that God grants an opportunity for you and I to participate in what's, what He's doing. Now, what's also true, in other words, it's incumbent upon us to respond to what God's leading us to do. But what God is accomplishing is not dependent on us responding. You got that? 
So it's not like God's purpose is hanging in limbo as he's gritting his teeth and biting his fingernails wondering whether you or I are going to respond rightly. Oh, no. It's like I always said. I don't... uh, I always, when I think about this text, I always think about... I always think about the impossible things that God has called me to do. Impossible for me. I think about... I think about the guy who was so introverted and socially awkward that, you know, it was, I would, I literally would torture my wife with the fact that, you know, she, because she's so outgoing and social, but yet early on, even in our dating relationship, you know, it was so hard for her because I would, I just would refuse to do anything that made me feel uncomfortable. I just would refuse. I mean, wherever, before I would go anywhere, I would want to know, well, who's going to be there? Well, what are we going to do? Well, what are, you know, and if she said too many, I don't know, I said, well, I'm not going. I'm just not going because I just didn't feel comfortable. I mean, the lost Tony was a, it was, he was a wreck. I mean, the saved Tony's sometimes kind of a wreck, but man, the loss was bad. So she worked so hard to uh, throw me a surprise birthday party. Now oh, that went great. I walk in, everyone yells surprise. I leave, get in my car, and go home. I'm out of there, man. Like, just not doing it. So when God says, hey, uh, you know, he didn't go from zero to a hundred. It was, well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to teach Sunday school. Well, that almost gave me a heart attack. And so I started doing that. And then I slowly began to realize, you know, that I had a gift for what I was doing. But it was over this course of time. And then as God began to slowly, little by little by little, but preach, I mean, are you kidding me? Three years ago when I walked into the Harrison County Children's Shelter and it's jam-packed with children. And I'm looking around this room at all these kids that don't have a home. Now, do you think that in my flesh somewhere I'm thinking to myself, you know... I think I can solve this problem. I mean, it is an impossible mess. It's impossible. And I don't know how many people before me God had brought to that crossroads to see that. I don't know. All I know is that I was standing at that crossroads, and I knew that God was saying, let's do something about this. Now, do you think I was going, yeah, we're going to, I was going, are you crazy? This is never going to work. How is this going to work? We can't do I mean, it's impossible. But it's the reality that God's prior to. And that He, if He's calling us to do something, He's going to provide everything that we need to do it. And so when we begin to walk in this impossibility by faith and not by sight, God begins to do things and suddenly we begin to realize, Wow. You see, this isn't, this isn't God doing the work of ministry 
for us. This is God giving us an opportunity. Because here's the thing. If I said no and walked away, God would just use someone else. His plan is not dependent on any human. And so you need to realize that when the Spirit of God begins you to nudge, begins to nudge you to do something that puts you out of your comfort zone, you got to start to think now. People always ask me, they say, Pastor, I, I, I'm not sure. I feel like, you know, I feel like this is something that maybe, but I don't know. How do I know that it's God and not me? And I always say the same thing. I say, well, is that something that you would naturally do? Is that normal for you? No. Well, then I'm pretty sure it's not you. Right? And so what it means is that God is supplying us with the power so that we can perform the work that He's calling us to. That's what it means. It's not that He's doing the work for us. It's that He's supplying us the power we need to accomplish it. See, you notice that in that text we read that Paul doesn't say work out your own salvation with fear and trembling so that God might then go to work for you. It says that God works in you, in you, in me, in us. So we got to have right theology here. God doesn't. He's not, he's not acting in us as a reward for our having first acted for Him. That never happens. Never. Whenever we respond to Him, it's because He prompted that response in us. Always. So when God works prior in you, it doesn't make your effort unnecessary it makes it possible. That's the way to see that. It makes it possible. That it would be impossible on your own. I mean, just the very, you know, every time we, we open the Bible, we ought to be reminded that God performed a miracle, a miracle in our heart in order that we might be able to read, understand, and obey the Word of God. That's a miracle. That is a miracle. 1 Corinthians 15, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. Right? He was with me. So Paul is saying, I worked hard. At all the things that God called me to do. And at the end of the day, I wiped the sweat off my brow and said, look at all that God's done. You see, Paul was the one doing it, but it was all done in God's power. And so in the end, you can't take credit for that. Because you're the instrument. See, you wouldn't walk up to somebody on the... You wouldn't walk up to... Uh, to somebody who, some artist who's painting a beautiful picture. You wouldn't walk up as you're watching them paint this beautiful picture and stop them and tap them on the shoulder and say, can, can I ask you a question? That is, 
that brush is amazing. What is it about that brush that's able to do that? You would never do that because it's not the brush. The brush is just an instrument in the hands. It's the hand that the brush is in. You see, we're just the brush. So to say, look at what I've done, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's the master whose hand we're in. Romans chapter 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Of course he will. Look at what he has invested. So here's the principle. Nothing that is required for us to experience optimum joy in Jesus will be withheld from us. You know how I know that? Because God's desire is for us to find ultimate joy in Him. That we would find all of our joy and our happiness and our security would ultimately all emanate from Him. That we would see all the other things that we find joy and contentment and satisfaction in all as just gifts from the good hand of the Father. That all of that comes from Him. I mean, he, He's not withholding that from us. So in Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may He do what? Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see how that all begins to pull together? I mean, you just think about our journey together in Hebrews and some of the things we've been exhorted to do. In chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Chapter 3, verse 6, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And just in this chapter, the command in verse 1 to let brotherly love continue, just that one sentence, just think about the implications of that one sentence, let brotherly love continue. Man, I chewed on that for days. Verse 5, he said, keep your life free from the love of money. I mean, I just can't read that and just go skimming right past it. Like God is saying, Tony, keep your life free from the love of money. I'm going to help you do this. I'm going to equip you to do this. But come on, we need to do this. We need to let brotherly love continue. I mean, all of these things, are, they're, they're important. They matter. This is God speaking. We're not, we're not, you know, this isn't me and you having a conversation together. This is God speaking to us. And so you, you, could, you just start reading, and here's the thing. It would be easy for us to feel overwhelmed and just throw our hands up in the air and give up. Because... It's a lot. And you just think, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I can't, I can't do this. It's too much. I'm too weak. 
That's why we need verses 20 and 21. Because we need to understand, listen, yes, God is calling us to do impossible things, but He's going to give us everything we need to do it. You see, in our, in our text, if you go back and look this morning from Acts 14, at the end of chapter 14, if we had two more hours, we would have had a big conversation about how Paul says when he gets back to Antioch, he says how God opened the door for them. And my question is, is, well, how many times has God opened the door for you and you haven't walked through it? See, a door is meant to walk through. When the Scripture talks about a door, it's to walk through. It's not a door where you go in and out and in and out. and in. It's, a, it's to walk through from one place to another place. To move from one thing to a new thing. And God opens the door, but you have to walk through the door. And when you walk through the door, what you find is that God then opens another door. And you walk through the door, and He opens another door, and on and on it goes. So these two verses, they tell us that God knows that too. He knows how easy it would be for us to just get overwhelmed and, get, and just throw our hands in the air and say, I, I can't do this, I don't know how to... How to respond to this, Lord. He understands that that's why he's telling us all this. That's why, that's why this isn't in the beginning of the book of Hebrews. This is after everything that we've walked through. We get to the end. That's why this exhortation is here. Listen, after all the things that we've learned and all the doctrine that we've been through, we get to here. And the God of peace is saying, listen. I'm the one that brought again Jesus. I brought, him, I brought him up from the dead. I'm the God of peace. You don't need to be overwhelmed. This is a reminder that whatever God has required of us, He provides. Whatever. And my experience has always been He provides the things that we don't even know we need. I could preach this whole sermon about Rescue 100. About the thousand ways that, that, that all I thought we were, all I thought that God had called us to do was this thing right here. And then God just kept opening doors, opening doors, opening doors, and it just kept going like this and going like this and going like this. It's not like I was saying, God, I hope you open that door. I didn't even know that door existed. I didn't even know it was a door. And every time I turned around, I would just, you know, look at my wife and go, is that, what is happening? You, I mean, this is crazy. Whatever he commands, he gives. Now, there's a principle that we've got to be sure that we have a firm grasp on in all of this. And that is that as great as all of this is, and it is great, we have to 
make sure that we have a complete conversation about everything the Bible teaches with regards to it. And so this principle is part of that, which is whatever you fail to do that God has commanded, you alone are to blame. And whatever you fulfill that God has commanded, you, God alone is to be praised. In other words, just like we said this morning, we have a God who is holding His people accountable. Whether you want to think about it or acknowledge it or embrace it is up to you, but it doesn't change the reality. He's holding His people accountable. And so whatever He's commanding you to do, it's on you to respond. So as God brings Hebrews to a close, what does He want us to know about Him in these final verses? Well, a few things for sure. Number one, our God is a peaceable and peace-giving God. He definitely wants us to know this because He refers to Himself as the God of peace, right? Which He does all through the New Testament. Now, I love the fact that God calls himself a God of peace. And I've thought a lot about his peace and how his peace is multidimensional. And it's at least twofold, two-dimensional. First of all, he's the only source of true peace, and he gives it as a gift to experience and enjoy. So the only way in this life you can have true peace is if it's given by the God of peace. There will be no people who think they found peace in some other thing. That's false peace. The real peace only comes from the God of peace, and he gives it as a gift to be enjoyed as you experience it. That's one facet of it, maybe the more obvious facet. The second facet is... God who makes peace with us as a gift to enable us to experience and enjoy Him. In other words, He's the God of peace by making peace. He reconciled us to Himself. We didn't reconcile ourselves to Him. He reconciled Himself to us. So by being the God of peace, the, the, the catalyst for us to ever experience real peace is the fact that he reconciled the relationship through Jesus so that we could have a relationship with him. Therefore, the God of peace could become evident in our own lives. So it's multidimensional. You see, he says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Okay, so number two, our God is a life-giving God. He wants us to know that about himself. He's a life-giving God. Because he says, he brought again from the dead the Lord Jesus and will eventually bring to life again all of us, his children, after we've died in this life. You see, when God refers to the fact that he breathed life and raised Jesus back up, 
It's a constant reminder to us that he has power over death so that what he has promised us, we know he's capable of doing because he's already proven that. So therefore, we can live in confidence and assurance because we know that he's a willing and capable God. He's a life-giving God. He wants us to know that. That's why he brings that out. Number three, our God is a loving and sacrificial God. Well, notice how he says that he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And how did he do that? By the blood. You see, we know this, that he's loving and sacrificial. On the basis of which he raised Jesus from the dead which is the sacrifice of the cross where his precious blood was shed. Look at the price that he paid. It was his grace and sacrificial love that moved him to send his son to the cross on our behalf. That he willingly and for the joy set before him endured the cross. If that's not love, I don't know what is. And God wants us to know that. You see, so what I'm saying is now you got to put this into the context of what we're talking about. I'm not just telling you all this so you can just go, oh, isn't this wonderful? This is such good information. It makes me feel so great. That's the wrong point. The point is, is so that the next time, tomorrow, when you feel this this nudging inside to do something that's pushing you out of your comfort zone that you don't want to do, that you're afraid to do, that makes you fearful, that makes you wonder, that seems impossible, that you'll remember these characteristics about the one who's within you who's pushing you to do that. That's the whole point. You see, what, what you're going to have to rely on to walk by faith in the impossibility of the things that God calls you to do is the the things that you know about the character and nature of the one who's calling you to do them. You see, if he's a peace-giving God, if he's a life-giving God, if he's a loving God, that's what's going to start to spur you on. If you know that about him, it's going to spur you on to believe and to follow him and to walk by faith. But if you're unsure about his character, you're never going to walk into impossibility. I mean, when you ask yourself, ask yourself the question, why is it that God seems to do just amazing things through some people and then through other people just seems to do nothing? Why is that? Why do some people just seem so averse to risk and other people seem to be afraid of everything? Well, I would say it's their view of God. It's their view of God. You're never going to do anything if you, if you see God as little and small. Never. You can never see God too big and too broad and too magnificent and too wonderful. So that's the context of all this. He's loving and sacrificial. Number four, our God is a covenant-keeping God. I love the fact that he says, not by the blood of the new covenant or by the blood of his covenant, but he says, just for extra encouragement, by the blood of the eternal covenant. That it's eternal. 
that when you begin to walk in the impossibility of the things that God's called you to do, He's a God of an eternal covenant. He, he will never in all of time renege on His promises. Never. It's an eternal covenant. Some of you, I know, you, you struggle. You struggle because of not your nature, but your nurture. And along the way, you experienced a lot of condemnation and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. And so, you know, for years in your life, you, you heard voices that were speaking into you, that were telling you you're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. You came home with your report card in your hand and, you know, you had, you know, all A's and one B. And the only thing that you heard was, why did you get a B? People who were supposed to love you called you names they should have never called you. And so it has created a proficiency within you to self-condemn yourself. And so whenever you see someone doing something for God, you think, well, that's because they're, you know, they're more than me. They're more capable than me. They're more. Listen, you have got, that is such a lie from the pit of hell. You got to understand it's the same God working through all of his children. Same God has nothing to do with what we bring to the table. Nothing to do with that. And he is a covenant-keeping God eternally. And so if you know what if you self-condemn, here's your verse. Jeremiah 32, 40. That's, that's your life verse. God says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. You hear that? It's an everlasting covenant. And he will not turn away from doing good. So now, when you, when you are being persecuted, when life is hard, when things aren't going your way, and you immediately, your heart gravitates to the place that says, this is punishment from God because I haven't done the things I'm supposed to do. The minute your heart goes there, you should go right to this verse. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, and they will not turn from me. And you should be reminded of the character and nature of God. And you should remember, how many times have I stood right here and told you, God is not a punitive God. There's a huge, huge difference between punishment and correction. God does not punish His children. He corrects them. Punishment is for the sake of inflicting harm. He punishes his enemies. He corrects his children. Correction may seem painful in the moment. Isn't that what the Bible says? But it is for your good. Right? So he's not punitive. He doesn't, he's not lowering the hammer on you to hurt you. He promises he's never going to turn from doing good to you. That's what he says. And so you have to realize that when you are, are in this you know, cycle of 
of, of self-condemnation. That's the flesh. That's not the spirit. And when does that condemnation, we got to go, boy, I could stay on this all night. When does that condemnation seize up and grab you around the neck? Because some of you live in this world. I know you do. And I want you to think with me for just a second. Do you think that it happens to be, it's just a coincidence that the times in your life when condemnation has got you around your neck and it's choking the life out of you, it's right after you sense the Spirit of God calling you to do something wonderful for Him. And condemnation goes, yeah, to keep you frozen right where you are. And you start saying things like, I can't, I can't, I'm this, I'm that. I'm, and as if, what does any of this have to do with you? God calls people to preach who are never even in church. I mean, I didn't even know how church is supposed to work. I don't know anything about it. I started doing youth ministry. I'd never even been to a youth ministry. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a youth ministry. You understand that? I started teaching Sunday school. I don't even know what Sunday school is. I mean, how easy is it to just say, well, I can't do that. I don't know anything about that. I, didn't, I mean, I didn't grow up in the right family. I didn't have the right, well, I mean. It grabs you around the neck and starts choking the life out of you. Right at the moment, the Spirit of God is compelling you to do something for Him. Number five, our God is a great shepherd. Man. Such a blessing. You notice he says the great shepherd of the sheep. I love that. Not everybody. The sheep. First Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I'm just so thankful that it's not up to me. It's not up to you. To, you know, once you, once you come to the place where you're, you know you're a sheep, that's, that's a moment of great just comfort because you have a great shepherd of the sheep who's the overseer of your soul. So the most important thing, the, the biggest if that's out there, the scariest thing that, you know, eternity and death and all that. God's like, I, I got that. I'm taking care of that. You don't have to worry about that. He's a great shepherd. Number six, our God is a sinner sanctifying God. You see... He's not just a, we like to say he's a sin-sanctifying God. Well, he is, but the problem is that's too impersonal. He's a sinner-sanctifying God. Meaning the promise isn't that he will 
make you rich and famous or that he will always spare us from suffering or disappointment. That's not the promise. He's a sinner sanctifying God. This isn't that he's going to do the things in our life that we want him to do. That's Santa Claus. That's not the God of the Bible. The promise of the eternal covenant is that God will do everything necessary in your heart and mind to enable you to do his will. Everything. To do His will. So that means for me and you tonight that we no longer have to live in unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, discontentment. We no longer have to live under the power of Slavery to our impulses or our desires. Things like lust no longer have authority and dominion over us. And if it feels like it has over you, you're deceived. Because the Bible says the contrary. No. You see, you were a slave to sin, but now in Christ we're a slave only to what? Righteousness. Yes. Because he's a sinner sanctifying God. And lastly, our God is a Christ-exalting God. A Christ-exalting God. You notice he says it. In verse 21, to equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Now, how is all of this going to take place? Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Through Jesus. He's exalting Jesus. He's saying, listen, all of this, is a reality, and all of this is, you have access as a, as a sheep of his fold to all of this through Jesus. So maybe we can just pull Hebrews to a close with this statement. If it is through Jesus that God does all of this in us, it only stands the reason that he, not we, should receive all the praise and credit and honor for what is done. It's not us. It's Him. And when you start saying that over and over, no, it's Him. It's not me. It's Him. It's not me. It's Him. You feel the grip slipping off your neck. You, feel, you no longer feel the chokehold of, of, of insecurity. You no longer feel suffocated by self-condemnation and inability and you start realizing wait a second if it's all through him if it's all through Jesus if what God desires to do in my life ultimately is exalt Jesus then what on earth 
is impossible for us. What? What would make us recoil in, in, in fear and trepidation and think, no. Are we saying God is, is not able to do this? He can't do this? And so it begin to walk in, the, in the, the power of this truth. And here's what happens. The more you walk in it, the more you identify with the easiness and the impossibility of what God's called us to do. Neither one of them fade away. Both of them become more and more prominent as you go. And you begin to think to yourself, Things like, I can't even believe that you allowed me to be a part of this, God. I can't believe that you would show me that. I hope that this week you're in the Scriptures. And God shows you something. And you just lean back from the Word of God. And you are just overwhelmed by the reality that the God of the universe just spoke to you. And showed you something. You. Think about that. That is Marvelous beyond my comprehension. 